Due to the graphic nature of this episode, we advise extra caution for our listeners. As a warning, this episode includes descriptions and discussions of rape, child abuse, and child murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. On April 17, 1949, Josef Mengele sailed from Italy to South America. After three years on the run, he knew freedom awaited. For Mengele, freedom entailed a safe respite from Nazi hunters. Mengele was one of the most infamous and sadistic members of Hitler's SS. A so-called doctor, Mengele had worked at the Auschwitz concentration camp. But instead of treating sick prisoners, he tortured them, using them as test subjects for grotesque experiments. During the liberation of Europe, Mengele was captured and placed in an Allied prison camp. But after a particularly egregious case of mistaken identity, he was released. Eventually, he fled to Argentina, where he got into the Mengele family business of selling farm equipment. Five years later, around 1954, Mengele feared that the jig was up. He knew that he needed to move to a new country where he thought no one would be able to find him. With a doctored passport, Nazi war criminal Josef Mengele settled down to a quiet life in Paraguay. And with the personal approval of Paraguay's dictator, Alfredo Strussner. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. Today we begin our final look into the life and reign of the tyrannical Paraguayan dictator, Alfredo Strussner. We also conclude our season on the South American dictators of Operation Condor. From 1954 to 1989, Strussner ruled Paraguay as an implacable autocrat. His 35-year reign was an anomaly in Paraguay, a country known for sudden and short regime changes. However, like other Latin American countries in the back half of the 20th century, his dominance and longevity would never have been possible without assistance from the United States of America. Last week, we explored his rise through Paraguay's historically chaotic political climate, as well as his tumultuous relationship with the U.S. during the 1950s and 1960s. This week, we'll discuss how Strussner managed to save Paraguay from bankruptcy with a massive infrastructure project. And we'll also examine his downfall, which occurred, ironically, during the exceedingly sympathetic Reagan administration. We'll dive into the reign and downfall of Alfredo Strussner right after this. In 1971, a tense standoff occurred between Alfredo Strussner and the U.S. President Richard Nixon. Both men were committed to rooting out communism in Latin America. But a fight over the extradition of Auguste Ricor, a notorious drug dealer living in Paraguay, nearly tore the relationship apart. For nearly 18 months, both sides argued back and forth until finally Strussner agreed to hand over Ricor. Ricor eventually stood trial and was convicted on U.S. soil. The ordeal was an unequivocal diplomatic victory for Nixon. And surprisingly, it didn't sour the relationship between the two countries. In fact, later that year, Strussner created his own drug task force. 
But the real purpose was less about prosecuting drug dealers than appeasing Nixon. But Nixon's favor would soon become inconsequential. Three years later, in August 1974, Nixon was forced to resign in connection to the Watergate scandal. When Vice President Gerald Ford was sworn in to replace him, his main concern was repairing America's tarnished reputation at home and abroad. As a result, the small, economically valueless Paraguay was not a top priority. Alfredo Strussner was such an afterthought to the Ford administration that he didn't even receive an invitation to the White House when he traveled to the States to visit relatives in 1975. In fact, he didn't even receive a phone call, just a simple telegram welcoming him to the country. The indifferent relationship with Ford had a silver lining for Strussner. Ford continued to send economic aid to Paraguay, but paid so little attention to the country that it freed Strussner to resume his human rights violations. Strussner's goal was to root out any and all civil or political dissent. By the mid-1970s, he had turned the reigning Colorado Party into the only officially recognized political party in Paraguay. But there still existed a loose fringe of guerrilla fighters and activists. That movement coalesced into a resistance organization known as the First of March Movement in 1976. Unfortunately, before the movement could make significant progress, the Paraguayan secret police discovered a cache of documents with the names and information of several high-ranking members. Wasting no time, they arrested thousands of people they believed were connected to the movement, including its leader, Juan Carlos de Costa. De Costa died in police custody. It was yet another example of Strussner's relentless drive to eradicate opposition and maintain power at any cost. However, the most brutal oppression was reserved for the indigenous people. The Aceh people were an indigenous tribe native to the Chaco region. They likely occupied the region for thousands of years, largely undisturbed. But as Paraguay expanded its infrastructure and resource extraction industries under Strussner, the government began displacing the Aceh, or eradicating them altogether. For this, Strussner used the Paraguayan military forces, many of whom had received training at the U.S. Army's School of the Americas. These soldiers raided villages, murdering the men and enslaving the women and children. The genocide of the Aceh tribe was done in plain sight, but Western allies like the United States refused to call it such. They even called for investigations to occur, only to conclude that the findings were overly exaggerated. During the 1960s and 70s, the Aceh had more land taken than any indigenous group in Paraguay. Most horrifically, however, 85% of the tribe's population were brutally murdered. Though it appeared to Strussner that the U.S. and other Western nations were turning a blind eye to these and other atrocities within his country, he could sense a change on the horizon. In late 1976, Gerald Ford lost his bid for re-election to the Democrat Jimmy Carter. 64-year-old Alfredo Strussner knew that his relationship with the United States was about to shift and not in his favor. Carter campaigned on the preservation of human rights at home and abroad. And after he was sworn in, Carter immediately set about reassessing relationships with many of the dictators America had been supporting throughout the world. 
And one name that kept coming up in those discussions was Alfredo Strustner. The pervading sense in the Carter White House was that propping up Latin American dictators who repressed human rights was untenable. Ostensibly, this practice had begun to stamp out communism around the globe. But after nearly 20 years, the results were negligible, and it certainly wasn't worth continuing at the expense of all the people being oppressed or killed. Carter seemed much more willing to rid the U.S. of all colonial vestiges and to promote a model of self-determination for American allies around the globe, even if that meant butting heads with American-friendly, anti-communist governments. Carter made good on his initial promises by signing a treaty ceding control of the Panama Canal back to Panama. To celebrate, he invited a delegation of Latin American leaders to the White House in 1977. Among them was Alfredo Strussner. During the event, Carter spoke to reporters about his intention to hold Strussner accountable for alleged human rights abuses. At the same event, Carter used Strussner's authoritarianism as a punchline, albeit one at Strussner's expense. Beside a silent, bristling Strussner, Carter quipped, I told Strussner that I might learn how to conduct a better campaign if I could see how the elections were conducted in Paraguay. The joke, such as it was, certainly didn't get a chuckle from the demonstrators and human rights activists who had gathered across the street protesting the event. But it wasn't just protesters on Pennsylvania Avenue clamoring for change. So was the U.S. Congress. Just a few months before, Senator Frank Church organized a committee to investigate clandestine U.S. involvement around the globe. One area of focus was the CIA, which he dubbed the Rogue Elephant, and their role in overthrowing foreign leaders. The Church Committee calculated and exposed the cost of these secret missions to U.S. taxpayers. And it was during these hearings that the public finally learned of the U.S.'s involvement in overthrowing governments in Iran, Guatemala, and Chile. As a result, an executive order established greater oversight for the CIA. And a year after that, Carter decided to take things a step further. In 1977, Carter proclaimed, For too many years we've been willing to adopt the flawed and erroneous principles of our adversaries, sometimes abandoning our own values for theirs. We've fought fire with fire, never thinking that fire is sometimes better quenched with water. This approach failed with Vietnam, the best example of its intellectual and moral poverty. The Carter administration ordered a comprehensive review of its Latin American policies and its relationships with leaders. The report noted, 15 governments in Latin America are now run directly or indirectly by military officers. We are uncomfortable with this level of military involvement in politics since some of the regimes are consistent violators of human rights. When it came to Alfredo Strussner and Paraguay, Carter delayed two forthcoming bank loans as well as cut back on the regular economic assistance. He also drastically reduced the U.S. military's assistance to Paraguay. First, he banned all U.S. military training of Paraguayan soldiers. Then, he reduced military aid by more than $8 million over the next two years, worth $36 million today. Strussner may have taken Carter's measures with a shrug. Because just as the U.S. began to apply pressure, neighboring Brazil handed Strussner a lifeline. In 1973, construction began on the Itaipu Dam, 
located on the Paraná River between Paraguay and Brazil. At the time, it was the largest and most expensive hydroelectric project in the world. One of the principal phases of the project began in 1977, and thousands of Paraguayans suddenly found themselves employed. As a result, the economy grew exponentially. The country's GDP doubled from what it had been during the 1960s, and it made the withdrawal of U.S. aid almost negligible. Not only that, it also afforded Strussner much-needed support within Paraguay. People were more willing to accept his authoritarian regime if it meant economic growth and opportunities. However, despite the sudden economic boom, there were still people who wanted to see Strussner toppled, and they turned to the U.S. for help. In July 1978, Domingo Laino, one of the few political dissidents in Paraguay who hadn't been imprisoned, was invited to a meeting in Washington, D.C. He spoke with high-level Carter administration figures, urging them to end all financial assistance to Paraguay. When Laino returned to Paraguay the day after the meeting, he was kidnapped. Paraguayan officials told the U.S. Ambassador Robert White that Laino had been arrested for violating a vague anti-democracy law. But the real reason was clear. He had spoken out about Strussner. To make matters even worse, Ambassador White himself began receiving death threats. But instead of backing down and returning to the United States, he embarked on a public campaign to free Laino from prison. This campaign generated tremendous publicity, even in Paraguay, where information was censored. So much so that Strussner was unable to contain the coverage. A month after Laino's arrest, Strussner capitulated and released him from prison. However, the victory was fleeting. For all Carter's tough talk, by the late 1970s, it was clear that the U.S. was virtually helpless to stop the military regimes in Latin America. In Paraguay, Strussner held such firm control that nothing the U.S. did, short of open military conflict, was effective in reducing human rights violations. By 1980, Americans had begun to view Carter as weak. Voters replaced him with Ronald Reagan. With Reagan's win, it seemed that any plans in achieving a breakthrough for human rights was put on the back burner. Coming up, Strussner and the U.S. are united once more. Briefly, at least. History. Politics. True crime. The new Spotify original from Parcast has it all. Hi, it's Kate, and I'm thrilled to tell you about a timely new series called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. If you enjoy the deceits and dramas featured on Dictators, you'll absolutely love what Very Presidential has in store. Exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, Ashley will expose the personal and professional controversies you may have never known existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. 
If you love the podcast Dictators, make sure and follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. Despite Jimmy Carter's valiant efforts to clamp down on human rights abuses, Latin American dictators like 68-year-old Alfredo Stressner remained firmly in power. And in 1980, Republican Ronald Reagan was elected into office. Unlike Carter, Reagan made it clear that human rights were not a priority in the battle against communism. For Alfredo Stressner, this was obviously welcome news. In fact, after Reagan's election, he confided to the new Paraguayan ambassador, I'm so glad you got rid of that Carter gang. They almost wrecked our relations with all that stuff about human rights. In fact, Reagan reinstated many of the policies that Carter had abolished, including the training of guerrilla fighters in Latin America. And he renewed diplomatic ties with the most repressive Latin American regimes, downplaying some of the atrocities that had plagued their countries. For example, Reagan praised Guatemalan dictator Efrain Mont, despite the genocide Mont committed against the country's native Mayans. Reagan lamented that Mont was getting a bum rap and was, in fact, totally dedicated to democracy. The statement was remarkably ignorant. Reagan decided that the spread of communism was much more of a threat than genocide or authoritarianism. Much of this stems from the Soviet Union's sudden invasion of Afghanistan in 1979. Once again, the U.S.'s eyes turned south for help in the Cold War. And Alfredo Stressner was more than willing to help in exchange for U.S. dollars. After Carter had cut off virtually all financial assistance to Paraguay, Reagan reversed course 180 degrees. In 1981, Reagan officials approved the largest bank loan that Paraguay had ever received, totaling $63.9 million, or around $180 million today. But despite this policy reversal, the Reagan administration did have something in common with Carter. Neither considered Paraguay particularly important. Just like his predecessors, Reagan believed that it wouldn't take much to keep Paraguay in line. He knew that when push came to shove, Stressner, for all his bluster, would capitulate to U.S. demands, as he had during the situations with Auguste Ricoeur and Domingo Laino. Naturally, the people who suffered most from this system of salutary permissiveness were the citizens within Paraguay, whose human rights took a back seat to a U.S. diplomatic experiment. But although Reagan showed little regard for human rights, his ambassadors to Paraguay were surprisingly among their greatest champions. From 1982 to 1985, Arthur Davis served as Reagan's ambassador to Paraguay. He wasn't afraid to confront the despot personally when it came to authoritarian decrees. One of the prime examples came when he challenged Stressner for closing one of Paraguay's few independent newspapers in 1983. After learning of Stressner's attack on the press, Davis canceled plans for a U.S. Army Regiment's parachute team and musical division to participate in the government's Paraguayan Independence Parade. When Stressner learned of Davis's directive, he told Davis that it will wreck our friendship, to which Davis replied, well, you have hurt our friendship by closing the newspaper. Davis's successor, Clyde Taylor, was just as aggressive in his dealings with Stressner. In a fairly shocking and confrontational snub to Strussner, 
Taylor met publicly with opposition leaders in 1986. Later, in an interview with the Washington Post, Taylor proclaimed, The message that we're trying to convey about the need for a democratic solution to societal needs here is that only with public participation do you have a good possibility of avoiding the kind of destabilization that provides fertile ground for extremism, right or left. To Stroessner, the legitimization of opposition parties was simply unacceptable. In response, Stroessner penned an op-ed in which he compared Taylor to Muammar Gaddafi. He wrote, It's difficult to see a difference between Gaddafi, enemy of the United States, terrorists, and destabilizer, and Clyde Taylor, whose activity brings us neither peace nor liberty nor democracy. Not only was the statement wildly inflammatory and inaccurate, it was a preview of even more dangerous events to come. In January of 1987, the Paraguayan interior minister was quoted as saying that Taylor had better get out before the Colorado Party precinct leaders and the Colorado assault battalions declare him persona non grata. A little over a month later, Taylor attended an event hosted by an opposition group called Women for Democracy. When the secret police discovered that the event was being held, they cordoned off the home to prevent guests from entering. The guests who had already entered the residence refused to leave. In response, the secret police fired tear gas. Taylor, with the help of U.S. Marines, was safely accompanied back to the embassy. But the threat on his life caught the attention of Reagan, who responded by revoking Paraguay's favored nation status as a U.S. trading partner. This was more of a symbolic gesture, since the U.S. imported almost nothing of value from Paraguay. But it did mark a turning point in the relationship between Reagan and Strussner, one from which it never recovered. However, it was an unlikely institution that dealt perhaps the most serious blow to the Strussner regime, the Catholic Church. For decades, the Church, a conservative and domineering institution in its own right, had tacitly supported Strussner. But by the 1980s, a new generation of Latin American priests had modernized Catholic dogma. Human rights, especially those of the poor, became a primary concern. Inspired by this movement, the Church of Paraguay created the Paraguayan Episcopal Conference. The aim of the organization was to educate and unify those across Paraguay who lacked opportunities in work and education, most of whom were victims of Strussner's repression. Throughout the 1980s, the conference's official newspaper attacked Strussner on a regular basis. And in 1987, the group organized the largest and possibly most significant protest against the regime in the country's history. The demonstration not only caught the attention of ordinary Paraguayans, but also the Pope himself, John Paul II. When he visited Paraguay in May 1988, he declared, it will not be possible to speak of a true liberty, much less a democracy, where there does not exist the real participation of all citizens. Respect for human rights is not a political expediency, but rather a duty for all creatures of God. It was a striking rebuke, and coupled with Reagan's rescinding of Paraguay's favored nation status, a clear message was being sent. The end was near for Alfredo Strussner. Though Reagan and the Pope offered harsh condemnations of Strussner, 
These were more the result of a changing tide of public opinion than any particular personal integrity. Throughout the 1980s, authoritarian regimes across the world were being crumbled by the people. Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and most significantly, the Soviet Union all witnessed the end of dictatorships during the decade. These revolutions heralded a new spirit of independence and a renewed hatred for authoritarianism. However, this spirit didn't quite extend to Paraguay. Instead, the revolutionary movement came from within Strassner's own Colorado party. Even after 35 years, very little had changed in the broader scheme of Paraguayan politics. By 1988, 72-year-old Alfredo Strassner was no longer particularly active in Colorado party affairs, nor was he mentally present. By all accounts, his physical and mental abilities had declined severely. Because of this, talk of a successor had been brewing for some time. In the late 1980s, a group of politicians from the party's most militant, loyalist wing engineered a purge of so-called disloyal Colorado members. Then they tried to exert control over the military, firing dozens of high-level generals whom they perceived as a threat. Their plan was to make way for Strussner's son, Gustavo, to take control of Paraguay when Strussner eventually died. This created a schism within the Colorado party between those loyal to Strussner and the traditionalists who felt they were overstepping their roles. But rather than settling things diplomatically, the traditionalists did it the Paraguayan way, without much planning and shrouded in chaos. On February 2, 1989, General Andres Rodriguez suddenly and without warning organized Strussner's ousting. For years, Rodriguez had been Strussner's closest confidant. But after Rodriguez refused a demotion, their relationship had become strained. And sensing weakness in his former ally, Rodriguez pounced. Rodriguez ordered Strussner to be arrested at the home of his then-mistress. But Strussner managed to escape to the offices of the Presidential Escort Regiment, the unit that had remained loyal to him. And after hours of fighting in which nearly 300 soldiers were killed, on February 3rd, Strussner finally surrendered. Two days later, Strussner flew to Brazil. For the next 17 years, he remained there quietly in exile. Finally, in 2006, the 93-year-old dropped dead of a heart attack. But his brutal legacy lived on after his death. In 2016, details of his most sadistic actions finally confirmed some long-standing rumors. Coming up, the ghosts of the past haunt 35 years of authoritarian rule. Now, back to the story. In 1972, British rocker Rod Stewart recorded the song Lost Paraguayos. Although the title might conjure up a song about the kidnapped victims of Alfredo Stressner, the song was actually about the relationship between a man and a much younger girl, trivializing the notion of statutory rape. Unbeknownst to Stewart, the song actually was a prescient, albeit entirely inappropriate, allusion to something commonplace in Paraguay. For decades, rumors ran through Paraguay that Strussner's regime not only kidnapped political dissidents, but also targeted young girls for party officials' own sexual gratification. 
But it wasn't until 2016, when the Paraguayan Ministry of Justice opened an official investigation, that the rumors were finally confirmed. Strustner's government had operated a sex ring with underage girls. The ring operated virtually out in the open, ignored by those in power. There's no exact date to suggest when the operation began, but contemporaneous accounts show it was in full effect during the Ford and Carter administrations of the mid to late 1970s. And although it's unclear how aware either president was of the conspiracy, the United States did, in fact, report on it. In a 1977 Washington Post op-ed, the daughter of a prominent Paraguayan family recounted an incident in which she and her husband were invited to a mansion in a wealthy enclave of the capital city. Once there, they discovered three young girls who had clearly been the victims of sexual assault. But after calling the police and attempting to report the crime, they were told that the owner of the house was operating under protection from a high-level military officer. As a result, the police couldn't intervene. Only two years later, in 1979, prominent American sociologist Kathleen Berry published Female Sexual Slavery, about the effects of human trafficking. She wrote, The enslavement of girls and women in Paraguay can be traced to the corrupt military dictatorship of Alfredo Strussner. Before his coup, there was only one brothel in all of Asuncion. The trafficking itself even had a very sinister nickname among Paraguayans, Little Red Riding Hood. Not only was it a nod to the fairy tale, but also referenced the red Chevrolet Custom 10 truck that prowled the country. According to Paraguayan educator Gilda Ferreira, who grew up just outside Asuncion, Rumors were rampant within her school about a red truck that would snatch young girls from the street. She even remembered hearing that the pretty ones had the most to fear. In 2016, stories like the red Chevy were finally given their due. According to the Ministry of Justice's Rogelio Goiburu, as many as 1,000 girls may have been groomed and then systematically raped during the dictatorship they tended to be between the ages of 12 to 14 and from poor families in the countryside. One woman actually recounted her own experience being kidnapped at age 12. She was at home, playing in the yard with her two sisters, when a military general approached, flanked by two soldiers. She recalls that, my mother handed me over without resistance. He took me to a house, he got drunk, and then what had to happen, happened. Worst of all, several people have come forward and confirmed that they witnessed Alfredo Strustner himself visiting homes around Asuncion, where kidnapped children were held. Often, he would simply drive there himself in his own car and park on the street, in full view of anyone who happened to be present. Even though Strustner himself is gone, the scars of this practice still remain. According to a June 2020 Latin America News Dispatch article, the consequences of naturalizing sexual exploitation persist to this day. According to the General Department of Statistics and Censuses, almost 50,000 girls and boys in Paraguay live in conditions of criadajo, in which parents give their children to families of a higher economic status who, in exchange for education and food, make them do domestic labor. 
these children's confinement often leads to physical and sexual abuse. It's easy and convenient to mock dictators as psychopathic megalomaniacs whose behavior is so ludicrous as to be almost comical, such as Jean Bedel Bocasa's quest to turn the Central African Republic into a personal empire. But the little we know about Stroessner, particularly the details that are still being revealed recently, are hardly a laughing matter. And until the details of the sex trafficking ring began filtering out of Paraguay, Stroessner's legacy was defined by another equally dark and bizarre characteristic, providing asylum for escaped Nazis. A small colony of Nazi sympathizers had immigrated from Germany to Paraguay long before Stroessner took power. But after World War II, with Stroessner's approval, Paraguay provided asylum to one of the worst perpetrators of the Holocaust, Josef Mengele. As a doctor at Auschwitz, Mengele became infamous for his sadistic human experiments. Mengele was so psychotic and devoid of emotion or empathy that he would often whistle a cheerful tune during the experiments, one that could be faintly heard over the screams of his victims. Mengele only lived in Paraguay for a few years before moving to Brazil in the early 1960s. According to multiple eyewitnesses, his time in Paraguay was quiet. Apparently, he was quite popular and made little effort to hide his identity, living under the alias Jose Mengele. He was safe there under the protection of Alfredo Stroessner. Harboring Mengele may have been an ideological exercise for Alfredo Stroessner, or it may have simply been another example of his disregard for human rights. If Stroessner himself adhered to the Nazi philosophy, it would perhaps be the only semblance of political ideology he ever held. Since Stroessner seemed to lack any coherent creed or principles besides a desire to remain in power, his ability to do so in a country as politically fraught as Paraguay was nothing short of a miracle. Like other dictators who preceded him, Stroessner consolidated power by crushing his enemies, kidnapping and killing political dissidents, and creating a police state in which the military and secret police did his bidding. A natural introvert, the only way he seemed to connect with the public at large was by aggrandizing his own patriotism and military background. In doing so, he created an image of himself as the ultimate Paraguayan and characterized his enemies, or anyone who disagreed with him, as a traitor and an enemy to the country. Unfortunately, it's a tactic that's still, to this day, remarkably effective. Stroessner's 35-year reign set Paraguay back decades. Despite the Itaipu Dam project, the country is among the poorest in Latin America today. Without economic partnerships and investment from wealthier nations, there's little opportunity for change. The United States, of course, isn't immune to blame. From Eisenhower to Reagan, U.S. leaders saw Paraguay as small potatoes. Stroessner's dedication to eradicating communism essentially put him in America's back pocket, regardless of his human rights violations. The result was the disappearance of tens of thousands and an untold number of deaths. However, Paraguayans are nothing if not resourceful. Under the guidance of a democratically elected government, the overall quality of education and the country's infrastructure are expanding at remarkable rates. 
The people are beginning to confront the country's dark past and create a brighter present in which survivors of Strussner's abuse can finally have their voices heard. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we begin our third season where we'll focus on three infamous female dictators who reigned during the chaotic transitional period of the Middle Ages to the Renaissance. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Tony Goodman with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, listeners. If you love the podcast Dictators, don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.